BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Bay Area is a rich place with some of the highest incomes in the world. But not everybody has a tech job. And if you make what would be a middle-class wage elsewhere, you could still struggle to pay the most basic expenses. Many families simply don't have enough cash to buy food, and the pandemic has made things even worse. As the head of one food bank told the New York Times, any hike in the cost of anything just pushes them over the edge. COVID pushed a hell of a lot of people over the edge. So today on Forum, we're talking about the state of food insecurity in the Bay Area and what we can do to make sure that people get fed. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As the pandemic broke over the country 18 months ago, many people lost jobs, got their hours cut back, or lost businesses. In the Bay Area, where many are just scraping by, hundreds of thousands of people were pushed to seek help feeding their families. Of the 10 California counties where food stamp enrollments grew the most, seven of them were here in the Bay Area. The catastrophe of 2020 simply highlighted a long-time and often submerged problem hunger or food insecurity. The government has responded in some ways. Yesterday, the Biden administration approved a major increase in its food stamps initiative. The extra food dollars should help families that are already enrolled, but many who are eligible are not being reached. So today, we're going to get a picture of hunger across the Bay Area and learn more about how you can help and what's being done to make food assistance more accessible to all. Joining us are Dr. May Wang, professor at the Department of Community Health Sciences at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Wang. Thank you so much for having me. We also have Tracy Patterson, vice president of Social Safety Net for Code for America. Welcome, Tracy. Good morning. Thank you for having me as well. It's great to be here. And we have Tracy Weatherby, vice president, strategy and advocacy at Second Harvest of Silicon Valley, which is a food bank. Thanks for coming. Hi, on, thank you, Alexis. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, Tracy Weatherby, let's start with you. Um, can you tell us about one of your clients and the kinds of experiences that people are going through uh, 18 months into this pandemic? Well, you know, we saw a need increase immediately when the pandemic began. And I think of people like Maria, who um, her husband lost his job right away, was out of work for many months. Um, Her mom and her dad both got extremely ill. 
And they're now back working, but, you know, she says it's going to take a few years, at least two or three to even get back to where they were before. And as you mentioned, prices are going up, their garbage bills are going up, cell phones, car insurance, rent. And so it's incredibly difficult for people to make ends meet here in this economy. And, and food is the one place where people can sometimes economize to the detriment of their health. You know, one of the early indelible images of the pandemic were the lines of cars outside food banks across the country. Are we still seeing that here in the Bay Area? Well, we are able to, at this point, serve the people who need food, but we do still operate a lot of drive throughs uh, Before the pandemic, uh, Second Harvest of Silicon Valley, which serves us all of Santa Clara and San Mateo counties, uh, we were seeing about 250,000 people every month, and that doubled almost immediately to nearly a half million every month. Because of safety concerns, we had to move from what had been kind of a farmer's market style distribution to drive throughs So we had to box all of the food. We were early on able to get the help of the National Guard. We had 140 of them in our warehouses at the peak, helping us make the operations work. We still have 100 San Jose Conservation Corps because boxing the food allowed us to keep people safe and distanced. Um, and we started 130 drive throughs We are hopeful that the state of the pandemic will get to the point where we can start to move back to more of a client choice kind of model. Um, but yes, there are still lines of cars, although we are able to serve everyone at this point. Dr. Mei Wang at UCLA, you know, it seems obvious that there would be a relationship between unemployment and food insecurity. Obviously, you know, employment is what brings income in for most people. And we know that right at the beginning of the pandemic, unemployment went up to 13%. Now it's you know fallen uh, back uh, to about 5 or 6%, but still you know much higher than it was. What do we know about the relationship between employment and food security? And is it as simple as like that kind of linear relationship where unemployment goes up and hunger goes up? Or is there something more complicated going on? Um, that's a really good question, Alexis. I think what the pandemic has, has brought out is has magnified the disparities um, uh, between the haves and the have-nots. And um, a lot of people who lost their jobs, as Tracy um, talked about, and many of these folks um, were not, they were making ends meet, right? So when they kind of lost their jobs, they really didn't have much of a safety net. Mm -hmm. Now we have programs such as SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, previously known as the Food Stamp Program. Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to be a, a safety net program. And not that many people enroll in it for, for many reasons, from stigma to shame, to just uh, an administrative process, an enrollment process that can be pretty cumbersome. Um, and so participation rates in this program, even before the pandemic, um, were kind of low for the state of California. I think it was average about 74% in 2018. And the counties in Northern California in the Bay Area have particularly low um, participation rates in SNAP. So in, in answer to your question, um, yes, with unemployment, um, you know, food insecurity goes up, um, partly 
because I think it's loss of income, but also people not making, um, not knowing to enroll in in mm. programs such as SNAP. Got it. Uh, Tracy Weatherby uh, at the uh, Second Harvest of Silicon Valley, when you saw this burst of food insecurity and more and more people showing up, um, what kind of support did you see from the public in the early going of the pandemic? We were incredibly fortunate. I think people think uh, very quickly about food uh, first in a crisis. And so uh, the food bank is primarily supported by individuals. Over 75% of our support comes from individuals and people were incredibly generous. Uh, so we were very grateful for that. Uh, our first problem uh, really was with the volunteers because a lot of our volunteers were older and had to stay home and stay safe or they were with corporations who had shut down and were staying home. So that's where the National Guard came in. We're, we're really fortunate now that a lot of our volunteers are back. We have a lot of great uh, safe volunteer opportunities for people both in our warehouses and at our distribution sites. Um, but our long-term concern is that for a lot of people, it feels like the crisis is passed. But we're not seeing any decline in the people who need our food and need our service. So we're hopeful that the community will will keep food banks in mind um, as this um, as people come out of this crisis. Because as you mentioned, people were living on the edge as it was, um, and uh, the the pandemic simply exacerbated that. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't expect need to decline anytime soon. Yeah. Tracy Patterson with Social Safety Net Program of Code for America, you have tried to take uh, an approach that sort of centers like an individual person approaching the whole safety net that includes food banks, that includes like federal government programs. Can you just give us a sense of what, what does that landscape of services look like from the perspective of an individual person who's seeking food uh, aid? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate you saying this because I think for the most part, the, the one word that comes to mind is uh, confusing. <laughs> um, I think we've, you know, we've built lots of different programs. We've created lots of different responses, but they're often not built around a person who's experiencing, you know, by nature, instability, um, depression, stigma, stress, all the things that sort of mental and emotional uh, breakdowns that come along with hunger and experiencing poverty. Um, and so, you know, what people have is often, a, you know, a lot of programs and a lot of response, but not much that knits it together, um, not much that really um, creates outreach that speaks to people, that helps them be, feel seen, that helps them feel like, okay, I, I can see one person and there's going to be a welcoming door and they're going to help me um, reach all of the services that I need. Um, I think places like food banks, schools, um, there are a lot of community centers that really aim to do that. And we saw their services get frayed, you know, as, as Tracy Weatherby mentioned, we're, we moved into logistics um, and we're trying to figure out how to then now shift our systems to be more people centered. Um, and that's really the challenge in front of us to make our systems, our programs and our services and our government more people centered. So what's the first step in that? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, looking at the Bay Area in particular, um, as Dr. Wang mentioned, um, we have these enormous disparities. So when people are eligible for CalFresh here in the Bay Area, uh, for a family of three, that eligibility limit tops off about $43,000 a year. Um, and actually that salary in the Bay Area is, is more like deep poverty um, mm -hmm. than the poverty limit. 
um, and we still only have about two thirds of people enrolled. So I think our first obligation is to make those services so much easier for people to access when they're experiencing that level of deep poverty. Um, and then I think our second challenge here in the Bay Area that's specific to a regional solution is that we have people who are in that gap between that poverty line and a living wage. And we've not really adapted solid regional solutions to address that gap for the, for the family that's making $60,000 a year that doesn't really qualify for government programs, but is living in, in real hardship. Wow. Tracy Weatherby um, with Second Harvest of Silicon Valley Food Bank. How, what percentage of the people who came for help, it was, it, was it their first time really accessing a food bank or, or were these people who had experienced food insecurity in the past and were reaccessing services as the pandemic hit? You know, uh, we did a survey on that early on. And if I'm recalling correctly, I think it, about 50% of the people had never accessed any food services in their lives before. And, you know, we're not surprised by that because we actually believe that there are a lot of people who probably need our services and either um, don't know about them, feel like there's too much stigma attached to taking advantage of it, or in some cases may think that the food they're going to get is, you know, poor quality food, whereas uh, through uh, the food that is donated and that we rescue, you know, over 50% of what we give people is fresh produce, Mm -hmm meat, milk, eggs, that sort of thing. But it's, um, it's, it's very difficult for people to take that step to taking advantage of services. And that's another reason we think need isn't going to go down. We think these folks really have needed these services for a long time and have finally discovered them. We're talking about hunger and food insecurity in the Bay Area with Tracy Weatherby of Second Harvest of Silicon Valley, Tracy Patterson, Vice President, Social Safety Net at Code for America, and Mei Wang, a professor at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. And we want to invite you to share your story with us. Have you or someone you know experienced food insecurity, whether before the pandemic or since it began? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about hunger and food insecurity in the Bay Area with Mei Wang, a professor at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, Tracy Patterson of Code for America, and Tracy Weatherby of Second Harvest of Silicon Valley, a food bank. And we really do want to hear from you. What questions do you have about this issue of hunger in the Bay Area? And have you or someone you know experienced food insecurity, whether before the pandemic or since it began? And if so, what's your experience been like? We really invite you to share your story with us. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions or your stories uh, to forum at kqed.org. Dr. Wang, 
I wanted to talk about some of this variation that we see in the state in terms of people accessing uh, what was known uh, as food stamps, the SNAP program, and in California, CalFresh. Can you tell us about who's doing a great job somewhere in the state of getting people signed up so they can get the help that they're eligible for and need? Um, yes. So um, the Department of, of Social Services up, up in Sacramento publishes these rates, and you can find them easily. So the latest data that we have is for um, 2018. And what um, we know from data published that year is that some counties that perform way better than others. Um, San Bernardino, for example, is one of the, what they call the top performer with a 92% participation rate in SNAP. And by participation rate, we mean that the number of people enrolled in SNAP, um, the, the number of eligible people enrolled in SNAP. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, LA County, the largest county in the country, is kind of you know in the middle at 74%. And then interestingly, um, counties in the Bay Area, um, San Mateo, for example, San Francisco have pretty low participation rates. Um, 2018, the participation rate in SNAP for San Mateo County was about 37%. Mm -hmm. San Francisco was about 56%. And Alameda did a little bit better at 71%. I mean, these are huge um, disparities between these different counties. Each county is responsible for sort of running its own program, or is there more coordination than that? Um, That's a great question. Uh, California is one of the few states in the country where SNAP is kind of administered. um, It is administered by the state, but it's also administered at the county level. So counties do have considerable flexibility, I think, in activities such as outreach, um, and enrollment. I mean, of course, eligibility criteria are standard across the state. So, so there are some um, you know, differences, I think, in how these activities are implemented at the county level. Yeah. We want to bring in caller CJ from Oakland into the conversation. Hey, CJ, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. What's your uh, story? Yes, I'm, yeah. call- I'm sorry. Uh, I'm calling because I've been using a SNAP for many years. Um, I think one of the issues for me personally with the government, you know, not as particularly the federal government, but also the state government is uh, the confusion and the bureaucracy. In fact, your guests, one said CalFresh, another said SNAP. It's also called EBT and Mm -hmm. all the name changes, particularly the the bureaucracy, the forms you have to fill out. I mean, all safety net services, whether it's food services or shelter, are means tested. Mm -hmm. So there's no just blanket level where you can just apply for one and you're set for everything with your Medi-Cal, with your food stamps, uh, SNAP, CalFresh, EBT, whatever you choose to call it. (laughs) Uh, So it, it leads to this incredible level of discouragement. And uh, you have to be very persistent. And just even learning all these terms is a challenge. CJ, um, how much time do you think it takes you to, to deal with this? Or, and look, what's the hassle factor? It's huge. It's huge. I mean, when you do your taxes, for example, or some federal things they give, I, I don't know if you've ever seen where they tell you this should take 15 minutes. <laughs> and 
anything that I get from the government that has one of those things, I multiply it by three, um, mm-hmm. especially myself, a person with mental illness. And so many of us have other challenges. I'm sure there are people, just the exhaustion of poverty. It doesn't, I, we don't have the energy it takes to do something that somebody who's a high level executive has. So you can just multiply that number by three, at least, um, the effort and the time and energy. And usually, such as myself, with sickness or mental illness or disability, it's just that much harder. And CJ, have the you gotten news, help from somebody before in the past? Well, have the, you sought out services? The good news is, well, the service, the I have to put in a plug for OneDegree.org. I call it the Google of social services, nonprofit services, and government services. Uh, small young tech people based in San Francisco, OneDegree.org, and they are trying to unify all these things to have one website to go to one place to get all your needs met. Um, and I have to say for food services, the good news about being in Alameda County is the food is abundant. There's plenty of food to be had. And I encourage my friends and neighbors to access that food and try to get over the stigma because there is so much food placed in this country, whether it's commercial food or even food for low-income people, there is plenty of food. It's abundant. It's these hurdles that we have to go through to get to it. And I'm grateful to be in Alameda County because we have the Alameda County food bank services here. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have community-based and faith-based organizations that do an amazing job of giving people access to food. Yeah. It's just getting it out there, accessing it. Yeah, accessing yeah. It. <laughs> CJ, thank you so much for, for this call, for, for sharing your story. And I feel like you've really teed up Tracy Patterson um, with the Social Safety Net Program at, at Code for America. It feels like this is exactly the problem that you all have set out to solve, right? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, I really appreciate CJ sharing that. And I think everything that she just described is what we hear literally thousands of times a week. Um, We operate in the state of California, a program called Get Cal Fresh, um, which was designed to help smooth out those hurdles and basically understand really what are the hurdles that capture people that really get you stuck in the system and unable to get through, whether it's the form, the way that the questions are worded, the, you know, you're going to get this form in the mail and then you're going to have to have a phone interview. It's incredibly challenging to keep up with the requirements of both applying and then maintaining benefits. Um, There's a sort of whole challenge around what can happen if you miss a form at the six-month period and then lose your food stamps and then have to re-enroll. So everything that CJ just described is what we um, really aim to solve with uh, digital enrollment support for CalFresh. Uh, We're also working now with uh, EITC, the tax refunds, and now the child tax credit. Um, so that we really build a mobile-friendly, accessible on your phone, in multi-languages, straightforward way to guide people through the process of eligibility and enrollment. Um, and really, as, as CJ also described, the, the challenge is also knitting that together, making sure if you're on unemployment and your unemployment's about to end, that you get a reminder in your portal that links you right to CalFresh or, you know, as you're getting health insurance and Medi-Cal, that you also understand they're eligible for these other programs and that you're not just told about it, but that we smooth out the path to get there. So 
I think, you know, that really is the challenge of building systems that are accessible and equitable. Um, it's not enough to just offer the program. It's about getting the implementation right. Well, and, and Tracy Patterson, at least from what I understand, you all have been working on this problem for several years now. Have you been able to show that you can move the needle with apply judicious application of uh, technology and kind of service management? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking. We have. I mean, we have operated Get Cal Fresh. Uh, as a pilot for starting in San Francisco, starting in 2014 um, and statewide since 2019. And we have been able to track and look at the data, um, particularly in the time where we were available only in some counties versus others, and seen um, that we've been able to have an impact on the participation gap by making the application process smoother, um, by making it easier to understand what's needed. Um, And I think what we need now is really sort of as... um, May described looking at how we move the whole system. Um, it is a bit challenging to get to that statewide equitable high mark that we're aiming for when we have um, lots of different localized systems. Um, but that's really the challenge in front of us is uh, how do we take what we've learned works and how do we make sure that we spread that widely so it's not just based on your sort of luck of geography and what county you happen to reside in. Mm-hmm. May Wang, a uh, question for you. A listener tweets, There are new numbers out showing people overwhelmingly spent the expanded child tax credit on food. Should we look to direct cash as a safety net feature to help with food insecurity? Um, You've asked a question that I think we've asked for many decades. You know, uh, is is SNAP or CalFresh, as we know it in California, the ultimate answer to, you know, food insecurity. And and I think there are a lot of systemic um, and structural barriers that we need to be thinking about. Um, I think Code for America has been doing wonderful things to address some of these, some of the implementation issues. Um, But, you know, it's not only SNAP, we have school meals program and it's, you know, California, as you know, is, is, uh, uh, we've gone into universal school meals this year. And that's pretty exciting. But we have a lot of these programs that are addressing food insecurity. How do we coordinate them? How do we do them? And how do we implement them in a way um, that is cost efficient? Um, food insecurity is really, its definition has evolved over time. And I think today we all agree, it's not only about getting people enough food to eat is about getting people enough healthy food for an active and healthy life. And we know that, you know, it's food insecurity, many studies link it to um, obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. Um, That's very costly. So whether we're talking about a moral perspective, or we're talking about economic perspective, I think we have to ask this really hard question. Is, Is food healthy food a right um, or is it a privilege? And I think long-term solutions are really necessary um, to address food insecurity. Can I follow up just on the specific question though, uh, Mei Wang with UCLA Fielding School of Public Health? I mean, what do we know about just giving people money? Um, If we know that some of its people don't have money, like we put money in people's hands and and some Mm -hmm. of these implementation issues at least seem like they would go away. I think there have been studies, um, there have been studies and models that, where that people have used that in ways that 
help the, the families uh, move up the social, social ladder. Um, and it means giving people those choices, um, you know, it's food or housing more important at that point in time. And, and I, I think that, you know, I mean, we have several experiments going on right now um, where uh, giving people cash might actually um, have mitigate the effects of food insecurity uh, more effectively in the long term. Yeah. Thank you for that. Let's, Let's, um, oh, yes. Can I Go ahead. add yeah. on to sure. uh, what May was saying? Um, you, you, uh, she asked an interesting question of, you know, is food a human right? And uh, we definitely believe at Second Harvest that, in fact, it is. And one of the things I think people don't necessarily understand about food banks is how central we are to the overall food system. Um, as the caller was mentioning, Alameda County Community Food Bank is one of um, our uh, uh, cohort food banks. We all have territories and typically for a food bank like ours, anyone who's feeding people in, in Santa Clara or San Mateo counties pr uh, providing groceries is probably getting those from us for free. And so we kind of are kind of a hub for getting charitable food out there. But we also work to sign people up for CalFresh. We actually um, use uh, Code for America's application to do that. We have a multilingual team of about 18 people who refer people to our distributions and get people signed up for CalFresh. And we work on policy issues like school meals. So our food bank has been um, uh, one of the big supporters of universal school meals because we believe every child should be fed in school. There shouldn't be um, free, reduced and paid kids. We need every kid to be eating together, building community and being ready to learn and thrive. So we're just thrilled that California has passed universal school meals and we're gonna keep pushing for that at a national level. That was uh, Tracy Weatherby, Vice President, Strategy and Advocacy with Second Harvest of Silicon Valley a Food Bank. I would like to bring in Nancy from Berkeley into the conversation. Hi, Nancy. Yeah, hi. Can you, can you hear me? Yep, sure can. Go ahead. Oh, okay, yeah. So I volunteer with a group called Help Berkeley, and I'm glad your speakers have brought up the issues of hurdles and food pantries. We began connecting people who are isolating for COVID with low-cost restaurant meals. And we quickly discovered there are lots of reasons why people cannot get out and get food. And what we're doing now is we're partnering with the Berkeley Food Network and Revolution Foods and delivering both heat-up meals and groceries to people in need. And I went on the first uh, grocery delivery that I've been on yesterday in South Berkeley. And there were a lot of people who are disabled, older, in other ways, just kind of marginalized, and they're housed, but often in marginal housing. And they can deal with groceries if they can get them, but they can't get out to the food pantry. And we work entirely with volunteers. People spend maybe an hour a week driving around groceries. <laughs> Thank you for that. Tracy Weatherby uh, with Second Harvest of Silicon Valley. This last mile problem seems like it's one that food banks are trying to solve in a variety of ways. Um, how can people help with that via this kind of delivery service or or directly with food banks? Uh, yeah, that this is another great volunteer opportunity. And it's something that we've been working on trying to figure out pre-pandemic. 
and was part of our strategic plan. And then when the pandemic hit, the number of people who had to isolate, who, you know, for their own health, couldn't go out to be getting groceries, um, skyrocketed. So we're now providing um, grocery delivery to um, it's uh, over 5,000 households across both counties. And so uh, there are lots of opportunities on our website, uh, Second Harvest of Silicon Valley, to sign up to be one of those volunteers that deliver those groceries. Because as your caller mentioned, there are lots of reasons people can't get out. They may have mobility issues. They may be at very high risk for the virus. Um, so it's a really great way to help people. And does that sort of bust your budget? Uh, on the other hand, just because it's m- much more expensive to do delivery than it is to have people come by the warehouse? Well, if we get enough volunteers, it is very doable for us, Um, but we will definitely need those volunteers in the long run. And, uh, you know, there are a number of programs that we had to spin up quickly that we're now looking at, okay, how do we make them a little more sustainable, a little more efficient? Mm -hmm. And we're definitely working on figuring out the right model for home delivery. But we want to keep doing it because we we now can really see how deep a need there is. We're talking about hunger and food insecurity in the Bay Area with Tracy Weatherby, Vice President of Strategy and Advocacy at Second Harvest of Silicon Valley Food Bank, Tracy Patterson of Code for America's Social Safety Net Program, and May Wang, a professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. And we really do want to hear from you. What questions do you have about this issue of hunger in the Bay Area? Have you or someone you know experienced food insecurity, whether before the pandemic or since it began? And if so... What's your experience been like? We invite you to share your story with us. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about hunger and food insecurity in the Bay Area with UCLA's May Wang, Code for America's Tracy Patterson, and Second Harvest of Silicon Valley's Tracy Weatherby. We'd like to bring in Zizi from Ranchwood, California, to join our discussion. Welcome. Hi. Yeah, it's Brentwood. B-R-E-N-T-W-O-D. Oh, oh, Brentwood. Brentwood. Got it. Thank you, Zizi. Hi, it's okay. <laughs> Hi, uh, Tracy. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you. As you said, California do now uh, have the free lunch program. I mean, for years, I know you, your parents, if your parents make certain amount of money, um, you're not qualified for free food, which that I understand. But the criteria, the criteria for food stamp, you have to make 1500 or 2400 for a family of three to live in California for you to be able to qualify. And I'm saying this because I'm an immigrant. I'm, I'm blessed to be a citizen. I'm a U.S. citizen. But I have a lot of legal immigrant people who work here 
and they're scared of applying for SNAP or, mm. or they have different names, SNAP or what is it called? Um, they're, they're scared of applying for it. They're hungry. Their children are hungry in schools, but they're scared of applying for it because when they're filling out their immigration forms, there is a box that states if you're getting any kind of help from the state and food stamp being one of them, some, some of those questions can literally deter, deter people from even applying for it. Their children are hungry. I know them. We talk, they talk to me about it all the time. Mm. You know, and their kids go to school and they can't even apply for, for, for literally food. They're hungry. Yeah. They're hungry. And, and, and as far as a free school, um, free school lunch go, goes, this is the first time, because my children go to school here too. This is the first time that I've seen where the kids can go to school and it's universal school lunch during mm-hmm. this COVID. The only time you get that is during summertime where they send emails and call our parents. You should see the line at where I live, the kids' family, because they don't have to submit no applications. Mm-hmm. The applications is tedious. Some of these parents don't even speak English. They, English is their third language. And they don't even know what to do, and they're scared of sending the applications in because they don't even know how that can come, the ramification of that affecting them when they're filing for their citizenship. So I think the state has to do something better about this. Zizi, thank you so much for sharing this. I really appreciate your your passion about these hungry children. Tracy Patterson with Code for America, these are some of the issues you're trying to tackle. I know that. What have you learned about reducing stigma, specifically for immigrant groups who might be worried about their documentation status or even just how it would affect um, their future ability to become permanent residents or citizens of the U.S.? Yeah, no, thank you. And I really appreciate Zizi bringing this up because this is huge, Um, particularly here in the Bay Area. We're a very diverse community. And so the, the impact of this is not small. Um, and I think what we started doing with, with Get Cal Fresh in 2019 um, was noting, you know, instead of trying to get just legal information out, um, it was trying to understand what are the questions that people have in their own words. So when people are describing the fear they have of immigration, of penalties based on filling out forms, what, how does that actually strike them as regular people? <laughs> um, and so we took a lot of the questions, we took them at scale. You know, we get thousands of people who, who speak with us digitally through text and, and email each week uh, to understand what is the nature of, of what people are scared of and how can we address their questions in plain language Um, really getting to the root of the fear because we know these things don't go away quickly. So what Zizi was describing was a a law called public charge that was changed under the Trump administration to include things like food stamps and Medi-Cal as a penalty against your application for permanent residency and citizenship. Um, This was changed back um, in terms of the forms by the current federal administration under the Biden administration, but the belief and the trust will be eroded for years. Um, And so there is still a persistent fear, um, not just of that that legal checkbox that Zizi described, but we hear, you know, will my child have to go into the army? Could my child be taken away? Um, The amounts of fear that are out there in terms of interaction with the government are something that we really have to not just sort of change the policies about, but change how we communicate, um, change how we listen, and change how we really respond to people who have considerable and understandable fear uh, in interacting with the government because of actions that have been taken and continue to be taken. 
Thank and, you. And just uh, to to tag on to what Tracy's saying, um, we Tracy Weatherby in, with uh, Second Harvest. Yes, this is Tracy Weatherby. Um, it, what we see with people we're trying to that our staff is trying to enroll is exactly the questions that Tracy Patterson is laying out, and so. Uh, it's it's helpful when we can tell people directly that in fact if they qualify um, and more of them qualify than think they do they there is no um, chance that it is the Calfresh is going to affect their immigration status so we are just always constantly trying to get that information out and uh, same with um, uh, WIC and with school meals, it has zero effect on citizenship or any applications. And so we're always trying to ensure that people understand that they can take advantage of all of these benefits uh, without any sort of penalty um, in the future. Thank you so much for the clarifications. Um, let's bring Kat from Mountain View into our conversation. Welcome to the show, Kat. Hello. Thank you so much for taking my call. Longtime listener, first time caller. Oh, well, welcome. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, so I just wanted to share my success story. Um, I'm in Mountain View uh, in Santa Clara County, um, and I'm recently homeless, um, been living in my vehicle. Um, so I went to, uh, excuse me, the community service agency in Mountain View just to pick up groceries. Um, they have wonderful case managers there. Catherine came out. She introduced herself. She, you know, told me about all the other programs that she could get me into. She got me emergency food stamps within a week. Um, I had the card in hand. Um, she also got me into one of uh, dear, wonderful Gavin Newsom's home key shelters. And I just got a job. But oh, I just man. Really Kat, congratulations. Attention. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited. Um, I just wanted to call attention to how successful these programs can be if they have the community behind them. Mountain View has, you know, a continuing pre-pandemic problem with vehicle dwellers, and they have gone out of their way to take care of the people who live in vehicles to get us into housing. Um, and it's Oh, I think we lost you, Kat. But I, I can say that story, honestly, this is a very hard topic. And I think that story uh, is very touching. And I'm really happy for you. Um, I, let's go straight to Tatiana in Berkeley. Hi. Hi, Tatiana. Hi, thanks for having me. Also a longtime listener, first time caller. Um, and my comment is just that I'm a single mom in Berkeley, and I make too much to qualify for the SNAP benefits. Mm -hmm. But as anybody, anyone can tell you, raising children in the Bay Area is, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, yeah. watching a train wreck sometimes. And it's so every once in a while, it would be nice to have that extra cushion. Um, and I got surprisingly, I didn't even know this was happening. I got, um, because my kids qualify for reduced lunch last year, I got these PEBT cards in the mail and I was going to throw them away because I was like, this is just spam. But they, I looked, I read the letter and it turned out it was money from the last school year because my kids were all doing remote learning like everyone else is. And so instead I got a card that I got 
I don't know, it was something like $700 yeah. and that I didn't have before that came in really handy right now because I've just finished paying, you know, the various and sundry summer camp costs. And that would be really, it would be nice to have that cushion every once in a while. Yeah. So I'm not food insecure, if you will, but it, it's nice to have that cushion every once in a while. Yeah. How do you feel like the free school lunches for all kids will affect you and, and your children? I mean, it's going to be amazing. I have two, my two kids who are still in school. I have one kid who graduated last year. Um, so my two kids are in school are very picky eaters. <laughs> so <laughs> they'll only, you know, agree to eat like pizza or burritos <laughs> or so, but I, I think it'll be helpful for sure. And, um, and it's also helpful that it just, it's for everyone so that they don't feel singled out per se. Um, because I know that that was also, you know, that's sometimes an issue for us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for that call, Tatiana. I really appreciate just hearing your story and congratulations on the kid, uh, graduating as well. Always an accomplishment. Yeah. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I'd like to ask, uh, Dr. Wang, what do we know about the increase of SNAP funding that just went through yesterday? Like, will that come close to closing the gap between the Bay Area's cost of living and what's actually available uh, via via SNAP? That is a hard question. Um, I think we really need to be studying what's going to be happening in the next few years um, with these increased benefits. Um I think this increased benefits in this in SNAP of about 25% or so that the Biden administration just announced. Um, while we may think of it as a response to the pandemic, I think we also have to know that, you know, researchers and advocates have been really asking for this for a long time because mm -hmm. Increasing income inequality, increased food costs, all of that was happening before the pandemic. Um, and ironically, it took the pandemic for us to, to realize how important you know, food and nutrition is and that how many people are actually not getting the healthy food they need. I mean, we, you know, hunger in America or food insecurity, it's not so much about people not having any food to eat. I think a definition itself is about people not having healthy food for an active and healthy life. And that is so important throughout our life course from the time you're born, because that affects, you know, your risk for disease, it affects children's growth and development and so forth. And, and so, you know, I, I think it's um, really important that the, um, in, in the next few years, kind of look at the impact of this increase uh, in food, stamp, uh, food stamp, stamp benefits um, on health outcomes, on the growth and development of our children, because I think that will guide policy, um, you know, whether we're talking about more of these programs or we're going to go yeah. into a different kind of model. Tracy Patterson, do you have any comments on the increase in SNAP funds, which will bring the daily amount up a bit, uh, the, yeah. the daily dollars that are going uh, for each family 
for food. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it, it's fantastic and it's long overdue. Um, so as May said, you know, this is really looking at just, it's not a pandemic response, but recalculating what is the cost of food. Let's also not assume that people in poverty have the time to soak a bag of dry beans before they go to work um, in order to prepare dinner at night. It's sort of taking into account that um, one of the scarce, scarcest things that people have right now is time, um, particularly if you're low income, working unstable jobs and working multiple jobs. So I think it's bringing us a little bit closer to reality. And then I think we really need to look at the combined impact of you know, slightly more universal programs um, like the pandemic EBT, um, universal school meals, and then the child tax credit to be able to raise that baseline for families and then really look at our food programs as targeted efforts um, to make sure that we have both a more universal approach to uh, addressing poverty in our nation and then also really targeted uh, programs that get at some of the health and nutrition access, aspects that we wanna improve as well. Thank you for that. Let's bring in Jen from Oakland. Good morning. Thank you guys for taking on this really, really critical topic. Um, I'm an educator here in Oakland, and I'm speaking on behalf of my students. Um, I can only stay for a few minutes. I'm supposed to be doing some stuff. But <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to speak to the quality of the universal school meals and the incredible amount of waste I've seen mm. um, both here at school and then also with the meals that are distributed um, throughout the community during the pandemic. And um, being hungry is one thing, but when you you are, are so repulsed by the food that's being offered um, that you don't even want to eat, that's like a reality. So I'm kind of speaking to what the previous caller mm -hmm. um, said about her children being picky eaters. Um, I got a couple of those boxes myself just to see, you know, what, you know, what my students and their families were eating. And there were some items that if you left it out for a couple of days, it wouldn't even change in its appearance. So I, I, I guess it's more of a comment about, I mean, I love Revolution Foods and some of the other um, um, food service companies that have really kind of gotten, you know, what um, kids want to eat, what um, people want to eat. Um, but it, it, I'm actually kind of emotional about it because it's like, you know, how can you have a child bypass lunch um, mm. who's hungry because they just cannot eat, stomach the food that's being offered to them. So I just wanted to put that comment out yeah. there. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Jen. Thanks for taking the time this morning. Tracy Weatherby, I, I assume this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. How do you assure that the quality of food that you're putting out and the type of food you're putting out is what people want to eat? Yeah, obviously we need to address both. First, we need to have the programs that allow schools to start to really meet this need and be universal. And we also need to make sure that the quality is, is really excellent. And I think it varies a lot by school districts. We have some school districts who do an amazing job and have scratch kitchens and have the funding to do that or have really great meal providers. And one of the things that we do is try and connect people with better options. And my hope is that with this universal school meals, that'll change the economics for a lot of these schools so that they can provide better quality food as well. You know, we had a listener write in to ask about the sort of root causes. You know, um, ending food insecurity and hunger is not limited to food banks and food stamps. We should also address the causal factors that put people in that food insecure position to begin with. I mean, we've heard that from callers. 
uh, throughout the day today, like gentrification, homelessness, job insecurity. How can we address the root of the problem rather than putting a Band-Aid on it? And I'm sure you'd all like to answer this one. We only have a little bit of time left. So, Tracy Patterson, you have to speak for the group. How, how do we begin to address these root causes? That, and clearly here in the Bay Area, inequality, just income and wealth inequality are so enormous. Absolutely. Yeah, we do have to look at the individual and immediate solutions and then the system, because, I mean, if nothing else, hunger is a sign that the system is broken. Um, And so I think, you know, we need to look at the major drivers in the Bay Area. It's housing and then childcare. Um, And so if we look at the rest of the costs, we need to make sure that we have living wages, jobs that support people to live in this area and provide the services we all need as a community. And then we need to look at our community systems and how we really connect with each other when that's not happening. Um, So we need to, you know, first and foremost, address the housing crisis here and then look at how we can have childcare and make raising families a bit more humane and doable here. Um, And then we can make sure that these programs are are more accessible and easier for people when they're needed. Yeah. We've been talking about hunger and food insecurity in the Bay Area with Tracy Patterson, Vice President of Social Safety Net, Code for America. Tracy Weatherby, Vice President of Strategy and Advocacy at Second Harvest of Silicon Valley. May Wang, Professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. And also a great conversation with you, our caller, CJ, Tatiana, Jen. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.